0: I really appreciate the worship team singing Trust and Obey and leading us in Trust and Obey because the reason trusting and obeying is important is because of the reality of of judgment. We're talking about judgment this morning. The fact that judgment is a reality and that judgment is coming. This week in staff meeting, we were trying to find which songs praise God for his righteous, just, and impartial judgment and we came up with a list so short it didn't exist. Um, I was reading about Pastor John Piper in 1980 when he preached through these verses. He said, I went through two Baptist hymnals and couldn't find anything about praising God for how good of a judge he is. Because it terrifies us. And then probably our most reserved and quiet staff member, Annie Wetzel, said, I say hellfire, you stay brimstone, hellfire. <laughs> it's kind of a funny moment. It's like, Yes. Yes, that'll stir us up in worship, a hellfire brimstone uh, chant. But we are talking about judgment this morning. And it's an important topic. I'm going to be honest. As I dug into the Word this week, I found myself convicted of things that, frankly, I've just never been convicted about. And so um, we're going to walk through it carefully this morning. Um, But I know there's a lot of very different backgrounds when it comes to what we've been taught about the judgment of God Obviously, the hellfire and brimstone is one. We're going to consider a few others here in a moment. So on last week, we looked at Romans 2, 1 through 4 and found that Paul was expressing that God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And as he was addressing that reality of unrighteousness suppressing truth, so God's anger isn't just random, he's not capricious, he doesn't just throw thunderbolts at whoever he you know, decides to throw a thunderbolt at. That's not how our God works. It's very specific. His wrath, his anger, his holy anger is toward unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses truth. God's all about the forward movement of truth. And then he addresses a group of people who have abandoned God and embraced worldliness and were doing horrible, wicked things, living lives of unrighteousness. And they were recruiting others by saying, hey, we give approval to you if you do the same bad things that we do. We can see that in, in lots of settings in our community, where someone does something bad and they recruit others to do the bad things with them. And while he's addressing that group, what we find is this other group over here of, in this setting, it was very judgmental, hypocritical Jews. And what they did was they looked at that group and said, "Yeah, Paul, they are disgusting, and they are so going to get judged." And Paul kind of does the record scratch, like, "Ered, what? Are you excuse me?" And he draws his attention over to them and he says, hey, you got a problem because you're doing the same things they're doing, but you're condemning them. So you're guilty of hypocrisy and and you're guilty of double standards and that's a bad thing. And so Paul, turning his attention to this group, is emphatic in helping them to understand that they were condemned and their only hope was Jesus. They had supposed and presumed upon God's kindness that they would never be judged Because they were already saved. And God, in their judgmental hypocrisy, meets them with kindness. That was the marvel of last week's text, that He meets them with kindness. They're doing this wicked thing, condemning others. There's double standards, there's hypocrisy. We hate that in our community. We've seen it in all the racism that's been on the news the last couple weeks double standards and hypocrisy. I'm better than you, Uh, I'll be judged by a a different measure than you're judged. And we hate that. Our children see it. We talked about that last week, that they can see through it quickly because it's so obvious. But somehow in that mess, God meets them with kindness, giving them the unimaginable opportunity and even ability to repent of their sin and follow Jesus, which brings us to our focus today in 2, 5 through 11. Look at 5 with me. Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath For yourself on the day of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. This is news to the Jews. The Jews are like, what? The Jew first? No, we're saved. We're good. We have Father Abraham. He's saying, no, no, no. The Jew first and also the Greek. Every human being who does evil. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Here we find the source of their thinking. This thinking last week, where they were presuming upon God's kindness and supposing that they would not be judged, the source of that, these judgmental moralizers, thought it was okay for them to practice the same things as the unrighteous and that they didn't need Jesus and that they didn't need to repent because they had hard and impenitent hearts. It wasn't just a behavior issue. Every one of our sin issues is a heart issue because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and out of the overflow of the heart, The heart, we live our lives and we we carry out certain actions. And so Paul's wanting to make it clear, your problem's not just a behavior issue. You're not just doing the wrong things. The reason you're doing the wrong things is your hard and impenitent, unrepentant heart. There was no shame or regret about their attitudes and their actions because they had a heart condition. Because of their heart issues that were resulting in their unrighteous living. It says that they were storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That gets my attention. I'm reading that and I'm going, whoa. We're talking about something deep and serious and sober here. They are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So in this first part, we establish two things that are important for us to know this morning. Here's the two things that we establish. First, there will be a day in the future when God judges That's that's our first thing that we see established. There will be a day. It says, on the day um, they'll be storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there will be a day where God's righteous judgment is revealed. That's number one. And then number two, this group will receive wrath. And the reason they'll receive wrath is because that's what they've stored up through their unrighteous living. It's like what they invested. It's like that's the return on their investment. They invested in lives of fleshliness and lives of unrighteousness and lives of whatever they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. And the return on their investment will be on the day of judgment, wrath. That's the two things we see established up front here. So we might ask this question, how does God's judgment work? It can be a really confusing topic. How does this whole thing play out in the end? As I reflected about how I was taught about God's judgment I realized that there were at least a couple of different narratives that I've heard and that they didn't really reconcile with one another. They were all different, and they were all kind of weird, some of them more biblical, seemingly more biblical than others. But judgment has gotten some really interesting illustrations over the years. Consider what you've been taught. As I say we're talking about judgment, are you alarmed? Are you, do you not care? Is that for other people? Is it for you? What's it gonna be like? Is it shame? What, what is it? So uh, I want you to really consider what you've been taught this morning because that's that's a good way to go to the scriptures and say, okay, God, tell me what's true. As I went through this exercise and asked others about their experiences, I found that there were indeed a lot, there was indeed a lot of confusion when it came to God's judgment. So here's some possibilities that, that may be your experience, and it's, it's at least a sampling of the experience of those that I talked to this week. The first one is that only unbelievers will be judged. So you get to heaven. One thing this presented is like there's two lines. This line, good. This line, bad. Or I guess this line, good. This line, bad. Right, left. And so the, the bad ones will get judged, and the good ones won't get judged. That might be one thing you've heard. And so when you hear about judgment, you might be like, all right, cool, let's go to lunch. I'm good. Because I'm a good one. The second narrative is the slideshow of shame. You ever heard that story? Seriously, raise your hand if you've been heard of the slideshow of shame when it comes to judgment. Okay, so, so that, that's where, apparently, before you enter into the eternal bliss of unhindered union with God through Christ, there's going to be a moment where God pulls together all your family and all your friends, your aunts and your uncles, and he runs the slideshow of all the stuff you did that they didn't know about. And he runs that show, and you're filled with shame and guilt and more shame and more guilt. Just right before you go into eternal bliss. Just one last, just hammer. (laughs) Sounds great, right? So we have the only one set of people will be judged. We have the slideshow of shame. Or that all will be judged, but then when you start talking about, well, how will everyone be judged, you realize, well, it seems like maybe different people are judged a little differently. That's at least a few of the narratives that I've heard growing up. You may have others that you've heard. Given that there's such a variety of different teaching on, teachings on judgment, our outline for the morning is going to come in the form of questions and answers. I want to be as clear as we can be this morning because I know we're talking about something where everyone's coming in with different presuppositions, different perspectives, and I want us to have just a clear outline of questions and answers. And I want to encourage you to take notes. If you don't take notes, today's a great day to start. I take notes because I don't remember the important stuff naturally. I need to go back to my journal or my notebook and be able to say, oh, that's something I need to think about. God actually says in his word, think over what you have heard and I will give you understanding. So there's a biblical principle that you're not going to understand everything you need to understand in this moment. But you're going to hear some things and see some things that you need to think over and God will give you understanding. So I encourage you, do not take my word for it this morning. Go to God's word and take some notes. So the four questions, don't put the slides up yet. We'll we'll get to them in a minute. But for the four questions, here's the questions we're going to ask and answer this morning. And it'll be our outline for the morning. Number one, who will be judged in that last day? Number two, how will they be judged in the last day? Number three, what will this judgment reveal? And number four, what does this mean for professing Christians today? Number four is kind of our application, sort of the so what um, in response to the text. So slide number one, you can go ahead and put that up. Or slide number two. Or three. That one. Who will be judged in the last day? Look at verse six. Two, two six. We already read it this morning, but it says, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. The answer here is everyone. It says to each one or to everyone. So every Jew plus every Greek equals everyone. There was no one who could say I'm neither a Jew or a Greek. That's everyone. If you're not a Jew, you're a Greek or, or Gentile at least. And if you're not a Gentile, you're a Jew. And so this is everyone. So our answer is who will be judged the last day? Everyone. He will give to each. He will render to each according to works. So it's a mistake to think that any of us will not be judged on the last day. Make anyone squirm in your chair a little bit? It made me squirm when I was studying it this week because I had this this sort of mushy, unclear, cloudy set of judgment expectations. When I see this, that everyone will be judged on the last day, it makes me sober up very, very quickly. It's a mistake to think that any of us will not be judged on the last day. And here's why. Paul is outlining this argument that in order for God to be just, in order for God to be righteous, fair, and a God who does not show partiality, he has to judge everyone. So that's our first question and our first answer. So that leads us to our second question well, how will everyone be judged? He will render to each one according to his, what's it say? works? The answer is works. So everyone will be judged, and everyone will be judged by their works. So in order for God to be a just and righteous God who does not show partiality, he first has to judge everyone. And then he has to judge everyone in the same way, because that wouldn't be fair, right? If you did that with your kids, they would see through it. Like, hey, you get the same thing for doing nothing, while this kid gets great reward Uh, gets the same thing for doing a lot. Like, your your kids would be like, that's not fair. It's easy to see through. So in order for God to be a just, righteous, good, impartial God, he has to judge everyone, and then he has to judge everyone according to the same measure. He can't have different standards. God's addressing the problem with double standards here. And so the standard is your works. Everyone will be judged by their works in the last day. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, every tribe, every tongue, lost and saved will be judged in the final day according to our works turn to john chapter 5 john 5:25 5, this gives us a little glimpse into this last day and what it's going to look like and some things that are going to happen We're talking about the authority that the Son has from the Father. And it says in 525, of the book of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And he says, do not marvel at this, which is interesting to me. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So, hold hold on. Let's just make sure we know what that's saying. All the graveyards will be emptied because the voice of God will speak. That's part of what's going to happen in this last day. And so he's saying, hold on, hold on. Don't marvel at that. I mean, it's going to be really hard not to marvel. Like, we drive by this huge graveyard. Some of us have loved ones in there. That it's going to empty don't marvel at that, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. But consider this. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This verse is one that people sometimes go to to explain why only some people are judged. But the actual word for judgment, if you go back to like King James, look at original language, is damnation. So those who have done good... To the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of eternal damnation. So consider how were they judged? What was the measure by which they were judged? Well, one group did good, and the other group did evil. Turn back to Romans chapter 2. This leads us to our next question What will this judgment reveal? Look at 2.6. So we've seen who will be judged, everyone. We've seen how will everyone be judged according to their works. And then this next question is, what will this judgment show? What is God wanting everyone to see in this last day? Rather than just a slideshow of shame, it's more of a reckoning of the judgment that God has already going, done and is revealing for eternity. So what will it reveal? Look at two six. It says, he will render to each one according to his works. And then in 7 it says... To those who by patience in well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the, to, to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace. For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. It's apparently very important for Paul to get the point across that God is not partial. He is impartial. He is fair. He is righteous. He is just. So this judgment reveals, first, that some have sought for glory and honor and immortality by patience and well-doing, and to them, it's a good day. To them... God will give eternal life. The original word for this patience and well-doing signifies active manly fortitude. I've never been so excited to find a phrase that was so emphatic when you look at that original language. Active manly fortitude. If any of you men in here think that it is not a a manly thing to be faithful and to follow after God and to repent of your sins and to put pride and anger away, what it takes to follow God is active manly fortitude. An active manly fortitude in what? These um, people have sought for God's glory and honor knowing that God alone grants immortality. This is the practice of their lives. This is what they do day in and day out. This is how they are Character, um, characterized. It's what Paul mentions in Romans 1.5, where he calls it obedience that comes from faith. Because obedience always comes from faith. And this is what the obedience looks like. They seek after the glory and the honor and the immortality that can only come from God. So what do those words mean? Well, when we seek glory, it means we desire to be transform, transformed by God into the image of his son. It's a process the Bible talks about as Sanctification. So we seek glory, we're seeking to be transformed into the image of the sun, reflecting the glory of God to the world. That means that we seek for people to be able to look at our lives and see God, not just us. And we're saying that that only happens when God changes us, and God fulfills that in us, and God empowers that in us. When we seek for honor, it means we desire that God would be pleased with us which we know is only possible, again, by his power. So for this first group, what's revealed on the day of judgment? This, judgment day for this group will be wonderful because they will receive the resurrection of life. They will receive eternal, um, unhindered access to God in Christ. But then there's another group. Remember our question, what will this judgment reveal? Well, for this group, God's judgment will reveal that the others who don't practice that life but who are self-seeking. So self-seeking is a problem, but it's a problem that comes from a hardened and penitent heart who are self-seeking, and those who do not obey the truth, and those who do obey unrighteousness, which is the aim of God's wrath, think practicing unrighteousness. For those, there will be wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress for everyone who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Why? Because God is impartial. So at this point, you might be thinking, either Paul has lost his mind, or maybe Pastor Scott has lost his mind, because I am not saved by my works. I hope there's a little bit of your soul going, you better get to the next point. You better uncover what's what's being hidden right now. Wait a minute. If I look a little further in Romans, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No one's justified by their works. What are you talking about? This is crazy talk. But Apparently, Paul wants to make another point before he makes that point because we have such a tendency to misapply it and misunderstand it. What I mean is this. You might ask, how is it that Paul is saying I'll be judged according to my works as opposed to according to my faith? I am saved by faith. No one is saved by the works of the law. So how does this work? We're saved by faith alone. How does that work, Paul? And to that question, Paul would emphatically agree. Nobody can be saved by the works of the law. So don't get confused this morning. The message isn't, you better go do some good work so on the day of judgment you don't get popped. That's not the message. That's not what Paul is saying. Nobody can be saved by good works. But before making the point, which he will make in chapter 3, Paul seems to find it a very important moment to stop down and make sure that we don't misapply and misunderstand what he's going to say. Paul is saying no one will ever be saved by works, but don't take that to mean that your works aren't important. No one will be saved by works, but please don't misapply that and make that to say your works aren't important. And here's the deal. Christians are very guilty of this. You've heard Ben preach about the, how a lot of churches have become bricked over revival tents and the goal is just to get people saved. And the thinking behind that is that we just got to get them saved because judgment's coming. And if you're saved, then you don't have to worry about judgment. But if that church then spends no time in discipleship, no time in accountability, no time in providing opportunities for their body to seek to do good to others, to serve others, to pour themselves out for the afflicted, for the lost, for the hungry, for the poor, for, for, the, for whoever is in need... But it's just get them saved, get them saved because judgment's coming. Get them saved because judgment's coming. They are guilty of the assumption that Paul is saying, don't do that. You cannot be saved by your works. But please do not make the mistake that that means that your works aren't important. If you're sitting there as a Christian being kind of sitting there saying, well, I mean, if I do good stuff, that's just kind of icing on the cake, but it really doesn't matter because I'm saved by my faith. I think Paul's talking to you here. For as you are saved by faith, you will be judged by works. Or to say it another way, your proclamation of faith will be rendered true or false based on the evidence of your works. If you say, I have faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and my treasure, and you continue to walk in unrighteous disobedience, you do not have faith. And it will be made known in the day of judgment. Because faith, genuine faith produces good works. Don't buy into the lie that your works don't matter. In 2, 2, just a little above, last week it said, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It mentions that God's judgment rightly falls on these judgmental hypocrites because they were practicing unrighteousness, even though they claim to love and belong to God. And he says his judgment rightly falls. The original language means according to truth. Or according to the facts. So if you hear that God judges according to our works, a lot of times there's something in us that's like, hold on, I'm really worried about injustice at this point. Because what if someone has really great faith, but they just didn't do as as many works as they should have with their great faith? How does that play out? Or or what if someone just does a lot of really good stuff? I know a lot of good people who are not Christians. What about that? Is that going to be an injustice? Is there going to be an injustice? Are there going to be people in heaven who shouldn't have gotten, gotten there? Are they going to squeak by? Are there going to be people in hell who should never have gone there? If God judges according to works, well, what about the the person who can't do the works they desire to do? And you start listing all these different possibilities of of, ailments or situations or villages in the middle of nowhere, and how can they know? And we start freaking out because we're worried, really, if, if we put it to words, is God going to do something that's not fair? And what Paul wants you to see is God will not do anything that's unfair. God is not unjust. There is and there will be no injustice. All of the judgment that will come on the last day will be according to works or according to facts. If you think about a courtroom, you're not allowed to go in there. Like if someone went into a courtroom to to bring a case against someone and the judge said, okay, make your case, and they said, I just feel like they are not good. I just feel like when they look at me, they're, they, they're evil. I can just tell by the way he, he combs his hair that he's not right. Those aren't facts. So God's not going to just look at people and be like, I just, I don't know. They're not good enough. They're not godly enough. When I, when I made, I, I wanted something different. I just don't know. He's not capricious. It's according to the facts. The case will be made, and those facts are your works. I want to illustrate that with something that happened here a few weeks ago at Crosspoint. A few weeks ago, we had a guy come in. He was in a pretty desperate situation. He needed some money. But he, he's, I know him. I knew him by name. We've helped him before. He's done work at my house personally. He's done work at other uh, staff members' houses. And he came in, and he was, he was like, hey, I, you know, I don't want a handout. I don't like a handout, but I need to do some work because I need to get some money. I need to put some money in my card because it's hot outside. And all. You know, it was, a, it was a really big moment, and, and he was upset. And I said, man, you know, we've got a whole crew doing work here right now, so I don't have anything that I can do, but, you know, maybe we can help you out. And he said, all right, no, that's fine. Okay, I'll see you later. And he bolted. And I was like, man, he's usually a lot more persistent than that. That was weird. And right after he bolted, one of the guys from one of the construction crews came up and said, hey, that guy took one of those baby bottles full of money, and he put it in his pocket before he left. The Rafa baby bottles that we our children put money in. He stole money from unborn babies. I was a little fired up by that. He put it in his pocket. And so I looked at the guy and said, are you 100% sure that you saw that? And he said, yeah, he he did. He put it in his pocket. So I bolted out the door just to talk and see how things were. (laughs) And I bolted out the door, and he was about 300 yards that way. And he was clearly moving quickly to get away from the property. So I'm like, man... I know that guy. He's never done anything like that. What in the world? That is, that's bizarre. And so I pick up the phone. I call the police. and I just say, hey, we just had a guy come in, and he's never done this before, but he, he stole some money, and uh, they're like, do you want to press charges? i was like, I don't want to press charges. I just, I want that back. That doesn't belong to him, and, it, and it's going to an important cause, and I don't want it back. They said, okay, well, we'll let you know. A few hours pass, and, and, uh, and I don't hear anything from the police or anybody else, and so I have a lunch appointment, and I'm driving down 1570, and lo and behold he's walking this way on 1570 so I politely swing my truck into the neighborhood and roll my window down and address him by name because I know him and he comes toward my truck with his arms up and he is mad I didn't steal your money I don't steal from anybody I work hard I did not take your money I already talked to the police I talked to the sheriff and I didn't take your money good news dude I've got cameras all throughout the building. If what you're saying is true, it'll be proven by what you actually did. And he goes, what, what cameras? You got cameras in the building. What do you you mean? I said, here's what I mean. I'm going to go to my lunch appointment, and when I come back to my office, I'm going to review the footage, and I'll be able to see what you actually did. They're very, very good cameras. And I'll see exactly what you did. And if what you're saying is true, you're going to be okay. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that footage and I'm going to give it to the police so that they don't bother you anymore. He goes, man, there's a lot of guys who look like me. It's <laughs> like, oh, have you done this before? Yeah. He said, there's a lot of guys who look like him. And I said, well, you're still in luck. You're the only five-foot-nine male with black pants and a black shirt and a red bandana who's come through my office today. So it'll be guaranteed. We'll be able to tell. If you didn't take it, it'll be obvious that you didn't take it because there's a camera pointing right to where those bottles were. He was okay, I'm going to be straight with you. I took it. So when he realized there will be no injustice, he he was like, oh, injustice. I didn't do that. There's going to be an injustice. There's a lot of guys who look like me, and I said, no, 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 there's no injustice. We'll only be judged according to what you actually did. I'll, have a, I'll be able to review the tape. And when he realized that, he, he confessed his sin. And he repented. And he promised me he's going to bring that money back at some point. And I'm going to hold him to it. That's a lot of what's going on here in Romans 2. We're saying I'm putting my faith in Christ. We're saying, I believe in Jesus, and God says, good, we will be able to know that by looking at what you actually did. Now, notice what it doesn't say, right? It doesn't, what if I had told him, you know what, I'm going to go review my cameras, and if you didn't clean the bathrooms while you were there and vacuum, you're not going to earn enough of my favor to get out of jail, that's, that would be dumb. That's not just. That's not fair. That's not righteous. And that's not what God does with us. He's not saying, do enough good works and earn my favor. I'm going to review the tape and you better have done enough. He's saying, no, I hear your profession of faith and there will be no injustice because you will be judged on the last day by your works and your works. What you actually did, we're not going to go by something other than that. What you actually did will be the proof of your faith. Which brings us to our last question. What does this mean for Christians today? So we've considered who's going to be judged. we are going to consider, we considered how they're going to be judged. We've considered what that judgment reveals. And then finally, what does this mean for Christians today? I think it's really important to make sure not to minimize the importance of good works. But there's maybe nothing more dangerous than talking about good works in the wrong context. That's been my biggest fear for the, on this sermon, is that someone would leave here and be like, I just got to do more good stuff or I'm going to hell. This is not the point. Context is important. And, it, and really, it's, it's difficult to just take these few verses because Paul develops the point he's making for the next 11 chapters and he gets to the application in chapter 12. So Paul has a lot more to say about what's going on here and I think what he has to say will help us in answering the question, so what does this mean for us today? And one, th- one of those things is in Romans 7 verse 4. I want you to look at Romans 7 4. In case you're still wondering if you have to do the works of the law to get saved and to earn God's favor, Paul is very emphatic about saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. And here in 7.4, he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. In Christ, you don't have to look at the rules and regulations and laws and be like, I gotta do all that to get saved. You are dead to that law because you are alive in Christ. So that... You may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And look at what it says. In order that we may bear fruit for God. That's our context here. We're not trying to do the works of the law to earn salvation. Rather, as those who have salvation, we've died to the law so that we can bear fruit for God. This is important. It's a weird thing to sit there as a believer and think that what you do really doesn't matter. It's almost like an assumption like, you know what, I got saved when I was eight. And, you know, God just kind of quit paying attention because the important stuff's done. No, he pays very particular attention to what's been done. He cares about you. It seems hard to me. It seems like it would be difficult to take seriously and have reverent awe for a God who's kind of a pushover. Like, oh, it's okay. What you do doesn't matter. He never says that. And if we assume that, we are assuming the same things that these judgmental and hypocritical Jews in Romans 2 were assuming. It also says in John 14 that God has given us the Holy Spirit as our helper. This is a part of his kindness. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to a man, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, anytime you're tempted to sin, there is a way of escape. You can look for it and you can obey righteousness rather than obeying unrighteousness every single time. If you are in a sin or you have sin in your life that you keep going back to and you think, I just can't overcome this, God says, No. I have given you my Holy Spirit as a helper, and you have a way of escape every single time you just have to find it. And usually it's through accountability and through discipleship. There's a way of escape. Whereas Romans 14.23 says, Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Anything. What that means is in this context... If I help the old lady cross the street and rescue the orphans from the burning, burning building and then give them all a scholarship to college, outside of faith, as, as noble as that all seems, it's still sin. But those actions are completely transformed when they're an expression of our faith. Anything done outside of faith is sin. So there's this question. Do you daily depend on God for these things? The Holy Spirit, the way of escape, the ability to do things in faith? The ability to bear fruit for him because we are dead to the law and we are alive in Christ. Do you believe that God helps us daily? Are you looking to God to help you daily, to put sin to death in your life and to bear faithful fruit? Are you eager to do good works? Our application this morning is directly out of James chapter 2 and a little bit of Matthew 6. You can turn there or you can just listen. We're right here near the end, and I want everyone to hear this clearly. (coughs) James chapter 2 would summarize Romans 2 in this way. What good is it, my brothers? In verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a very, very biblical principle. And it says in 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead faith is not saving faith. How do I know it's saving faith? Works. Look at Matthew 6. You don't have to turn there. Just a few little satellites here at the end of the sermon to give you something to chew on. Because like I said, don't take my word for it. Go spend time in the word this week. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For those in Romans 2 who had the hardened and impenitent heart, they did not have treasure in heaven. They had treasure on earth because that's where their heart was. So what the, you put these together, it's pretty much our application for the morning is prove your faith by your works, and in doing so, store up treasure in heaven. On the day of judgment, it will be one or the other. It will be wrath, or it will be reward. You won't get a combination. If you're sitting there wondering, am I going to have like a slideshow of shame and all this wrath that comes on me, and then I get rewarded according to the good works that I did, I uh, do enough good works, that, you're that's not the way it works. It's either wrath or reward. It's one or the other. Everyone will take sin with them into the final judgment day. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who are in Christ, that sin is taken care of by him. It's a beautiful moment for those who are in Christ. But on that final day, it's one or the other. It's wrath or reward. So prove your faith by your works, and in doing so, store up treasure in heaven. And please do not buy into the lie that your works don't matter. Your works matter greatly. Probably one of the biggest forms of hypocrisy that people look at the church at and accuse the church of is the fact that they don't do what they say, or they say one thing and don't do another. Don't buy into the lie that your works don't matter. But also, just as important, don't buy into the lie that you can do any of these good works outside of a life of Christ. Don't leave here thinking, i got to do those good works and buy into a lie that you think you can actually do the good works that God's talking about outside of Jesus. It's only within the realm of faith. Romans 14, anything done outside of faith is sin. The most noble things that this world may look at and say, that's good. If it's done outside of faith, it's sin. So don't think your works aren't important and don't think that you can do those right faithful things fruitful works of God outside of Christ. If you're convicted about blank, God says do something about it. If you're convicted about racism, God says do something about it. If you're convicted about poverty, about orphans, about those who are hungry, about those who are lost, about those who have not heard the gospel, God in these verses lovingly says, You can do something about that. I give you my Holy Spirit. I provide a way of escape when you're tempted. Otherwise, go move in faith. That's pleasing to God. That's the honor that you seek. It's it's actually possible for you to do these works and for God to say, well done. What's better than that? Kind of what we talked about last week, what better motivation do we have to do good works other than we are saved? We have to get them in the right order.